Today's scripture reading will be out of Mark 10, 32 through 45. If you guys have your Bibles, you guys can open up with me, but I'm going to begin now. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. Hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, It has been a big week or two. Uh, Looks like Facebook is taking over. I don't know if you've been tracking this. Meta, the metaverse. Facebook is changing their name to Meta. Uh, The metaverse is this virtual reality community. Um, So, you know, I think at this point we just we acknowledge that we have lost. The robots have won. They're coming for all of us. There's nothing we can do. Now, I don't know if you're, if you're sort of following this story, but the metaverse is supposed to be this, this virtual reality space where you put these goggles on that Facebook will sell to you, and then you can go to work. You can see your friends, go out to eat. You can try on clothes, go to a concert, visit another country, all without leaving your own, you know, closet or wherever you choose to do this. Now, I'm not a big social media guy, if you know me, and I'm, and I'm probably least, uh, I, I like Facebook the least out of all the different options. And it's totally fine if, if, you, if you're into Facebook and social media, totally fine. But for me, I just look at it and say it's this constant source of distraction. I mean, it's like this dumpster fire of comparison, image, projection, advertising. They're gaining all sorts of information about us that they can use later to get more of our time and attention and money. Uh, Again, totally fine if you're into it, not against it. But even when we see something like social media, which is supposed to be this this source of community and belonging, and it brings people together. Uh, even, even then, there's this sort of underbelly of, of power and control and information. And, and of course, Facebook was just in front of Congress like a couple years ago for their soul stealing. But with the metaverse, it's like they're just doubling down. 
And so again, totally fine if you're into it. But one of the things I notice is that it seems like beneath absolutely everything in our world, there's a layer of power and ambition. And, and I, I looked for a quote because I thought, you know what? Maybe there are very noble and sincere hearts behind the metaverse. And so here is a quote from, from Zuckerberg. Just try to be fair. He says, a meaningful part of the metaverse will be advertising. Actually, that's not a great quote, but that was the best one I could find. So <laughs> clearly not a big fan, but totally fine if you are. Now, what we're looking at in this series this fall is how do we inhabit the, the world that we find ourselves in as Christians? How do, we, how do we follow the words, the teachings, the life of Jesus in the 21st century context that we find ourselves in? How do we immerse ourselves so much into the character, the lifestyle, the teachings of Jesus so that we know how to inhabit our own cultural moment? How are we so aware of what he was doing in his life, death, and resurrection that we can step into this world uh, as Christ, like Christ would if he were here? And today in particular, we're looking at the words of Jesus when he is confronted by power hunger, by selfish ambition from his own community, like from the disciples, from two of his closest followers and friends, we get to see how he responds to their desire for, for power, for greatness, for, for their own glory. And in this passage, we actually see Jesus's clearest teachings on greatness. So this is the one spot in, in all of the scriptures where Jesus just explicitly defines and describes what he means by true greatness. And so the three things that we're going to look at this morning are the problem of power, the ransom for many, and then the greatness of servanthood. So the problem of power, the ransom for many, and then the greatness of servanthood. So we'll start with, with the problem of power. And before we get right into Jesus's words, there's this paragraph that, that we need to recognize in terms of the context. And so if you were here last week, we taught from earlier in Mark 10, where the rich young ruler, or I, I called him the college-educated young professional, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus interacts with him on money. And then it's, it's after that that we, we get to our passage, which is about power and ambition. And so it's, it's a way for Mark, the gospel writer, to sort of hold these two stories before us as, as like, here's the trap of money and here's the trap of power. But he puts a paragraph right in between the two and it starts in verses 31, 32. He says, again, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And so it's three times now in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then again, chapter 10. It's almost the exact same paragraph. It's Jesus as they're moving towards Jerusalem, which is where the people are who want to kill him and crucify him. They're going directly to Jerusalem and Jesus pulls them aside and says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And this is all absolutely essential to my mission. And then it's like three out of three, the disciples don't get it. They're, they're not tracking. It does not make sense in their world. But at the same time, we can't be too hard on the disciples. 
We said this throughout the series that they didn't have, Israel at this time didn't have a category for a coming Messiah who would free them and and release them from the, the evil and the oppression that they've experienced and yet be the same Messiah who would suffer and die. And so they envisioned a a king coming on the clouds, but they couldn't envision a king who first had to suffer and die. And so we need to see ourselves in the disciples. We are the disciples. So now beginning in verse 35, moments after Jesus is teaching on the cross and what must happen to him, it's the brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. Some of the other passages call them the sons of thunder. That's the nickname that Jesus gave them. The brothers approach him, and and we see from the same story in the Gospel of Matthew that their mother's involved. And and so mom has been working on them. James and John come together. Mom's in the background. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, in general, not a great place to start with Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask. You know, like when our kids say something like that to us, we just say, try again. Start back from the beginning and give it another shot. But, but Jesus is actually incredibly patient. Verse 36, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Perhaps he's a, a little bit amused or curious what on earth they're going to request. They replied, verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And so Jesus is probably thinking, okay, interesting idea. So like, Jesus, James, and John on three thrones. Am I kind of getting this right? This is kind of like the three of us in glory. And he says, verse 38, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Now, why does he he ask this? This language, especially the cup that he is going to drink, this is a strong symbol throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament and in a few places in the New Testament, the cup represents God's just judgment on the world. It represents his his wrath, which is his, his love and his power in action against sin and evil and brokenness. And so in the Old Testament, you'd see these prophecies that one day God would pour out the cup of his wrath on his enemies and wipe them out. We see that whenever we sin against the Lord, what we deserve is to drink to the dregs the cup of God's justice. And so Jesus is saying, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Now, not really knowing what they're saying, they say, we can, we can do it. They still, still don't get it. See, they were ready for Jesus' kingdom to come in all of its glory, and they wanted important seats in the government, like when there's a new president, you know, brought into office, and he fills out the important positions of his cabinet, and these are the ones that sit around that table. They want to be the ones at the right and the left, the positions of power and honor and authority. Now, this is what Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And so James and John, they want to be on the right and the left when Jesus comes into his glory. And there's a couple different ways to look at this. But if you think about what was the moment when Jesus 
achieved his glory? What was the moment that all the other moments were pointing to where he secured his victory, where his glory would shine forth? It's actually the cross. It's actually the moment of his crucifixion and his death. And he was in between a man on his right and a man on his left, but they were two criminals who were dying right alongside with him. And so it's really the sheer grace of God that Jesus would say, you're not going to be on my right and my left. Those positions have been given to other people. And yet you will still drink the cup. You will still be baptized with this baptism. Now I call this point the problem of power. And you know the appeal of power, of control and status and positional stature, to be seen by others in a certain way, to have a certain amount of respect over others, to have what they want. And so we can look at the disciples and say what fools they are, but instead we need to look at them and say what fools we are. And we all do this in our own ways with Jesus and our work and our families and friendships all over the place. We're looking for power, for control, for status, for authority. As Christians, we tend to do it in really subtle and sneaky ways. It might look like putting someone else down for a, in, in a really small and kind of offhanded way to where we can say, you know, I was just joking, don't be so sensitive. It might look like seeking the company of a popular or a successful person so that they can look at us and, and see us in a better light. It might look like not serving the poor and needy and marginalized so we can avoid their pain and being identified with them. It might look like not giving generously so that we have more or not serving because it's not exciting enough and so on. We live in a country that's obsessed with power in a cultural moment where everybody seems to be anti-authority. Nobody can have power over me. Let's question and doubt all tradition, all power, authority. It's all bad. And yet every single one of us is also striving and seeking power in one place or another. Now, the second thing begins in verse 41. It's the ransom for many. How is it that Jesus speaks into this? It says, when the 10 heard about this, the request of the brothers, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the ten are, are rightfully angry with, you know, the Thunder Brothers. But then Jesus speaks, he senses the conflict and the tension, and, and he speaks to all of them. And I actually want to flip it around for a minute. So before we look at his words on servanthood, I want to look at this ransom that he's talking about in verse 45. Most of the scholars of Mark, they suggest that this is the central verse in all of the gospel of Mark. That the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying something here about his identity and his mission and, and his way of living or the nature of his life. And so his identity, Jesus again uses this phrase, son of man, that we've seen several times in the gospel of Mark. He's identifying himself as the promised Messiah, the, the holy one of Israel that would come riding on the clouds to bring glory and, and to restore Israel. 
And yet he's also saying, I am that Messiah, and yet it's going to look different. I am the Son of Man. I will return in glory, riding on the clouds. But first, I come as a human being, as a baby boy born in in a stable. Instead of coming on the clouds, first, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. We see also something true of his mission that in the Old Testament, the Son of Man was, was this, the great one that I mentioned, and yet Jesus is flipping all of that upside down, and he's saying the Son of Man, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but the mission is to serve, and even more pointedly, to give his life as a ransom for many. His mission was the salvation of God's people, our redemption from our slavery and our sin, And the way that this comes about is by Jesus giving his life as a ransom. Now, that word ransom is what's so important to this whole passage. And it's not a word that we use often in our culture. If if we use the word ransom, it's usually like in a movie, there's a ransom note. You know, like, I've kidnapped your children, meet me at the train tracks with $5 million, right? And then Liam Neeson's like, oh, I'll meet you there, you know? It's like, you picked the wrong grandpa, But a ransom is is a type of payment in exchange for a person. And so in ancient times in particular, a a ransom was made either for a a prisoner or a slave. And so if somebody was in prison, say your your friend or or maybe your grown son was put into prison, you could buy their freedom for an enormous sum of money. So it wasn't just like making bail, but rather it was in a sum of money where you could purchase the freedom of that prisoner and, and then there would be no other charges held against them. In the same way, if, if somebody was a slave, they were born into slavery or made a slave, you could purchase their freedom by paying an amount of money that was equivalent to their lifetime of service. And so the ransom amount is set by sort of the value of the person or their contribution that they can make as a servant or a prisoner. And the ransom was, was the amount of money that was considered equivalent. Now, In this verse, this phrase, it's why it's so important. Jesus is saying that all mankind has sinned against God. Every single one of us has a penalty that we need to pay, the the wages of sin, and and it's death. So in other words, there's a payment that needs to be made for, for us to go free, for us as prisoners, as slaves to Satan and evil, there's a payment that can be made that might set us free. And Jesus is saying, I am that payment. Not simply, I will make that payment, but rather my life is the payment. My death will satisfy, will exchange your freedom for my sacrifice. I have come to die for you, to put myself in your place and pay your penalty. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. The Son of Man came to give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for all those who believe. Now, we get back to Jesus' words on power and ambition and greatness. The third thing is the greatness of servanthood. We see it if we go back to verse 42, Jesus is saying the whole world is after power and they want to use it to lord it over people, to exercise authority over others, but not so with you. And then this is the moment where Jesus explicitly defines and describes what greatness is from his own heart. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. 
Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And so true greatness, according to Jesus, in a word, it's servanthood. To become a servant of all. And Jesus is connecting this to his own mission as the ransom for many. And he's saying the essence of greatness is servanthood. And what servanthood is, is a substitutionary sacrifice. He's saying what what true servanthood is, is, is best understood in the substitutionary sacrifice that I'm making. And that's the essence of servanthood. In fact, Tim Keller has said before that all true love is substitutionary sacrifice. What he means is that all acts of love require a giving of yourself, uh, an inconvenience to ourselves as we seek to, to improve the life of somebody else or to decrease their suffering. All acts of true love are, are putting suffering upon ourselves, taking that sacrifice so that somebody else might not suffer or might not suffer as much. Substitutionary sacrifice is about taking the posture of servant in the relationship between two people. So I'll give you a few examples. The easiest one is parenting. So in parenting, you bring this child into the world and they start off small, helpless, totally dependent. And so as a parent, we have to give up our freedom. We give up our comforts. We give up our our ability to, to do things and to have an ounce of energy within our bodies, all for the sake of somebody else. I mean, we feed them, change their diapers. Even as they grow up, we're buying their clothes. We're we're driving them everywhere they need to go. Good parenting is an amount of sacrifice, substituting themselves so that the child won't have to suffer as much later. So when we suffer for our children, when we bear that burden and that cost, when we put their needs above our needs, They turn out better as people. They actually suffer less in life because they've been raised in an environment of love and acceptance and service. And so we're actually minimizing their future suffering and the future suffering that they cause by bearing some of that suffering here and now. Another example is friendship. Friendship too is substitutionary sacrifice where you ask the other person how they're doing. You, you invest in them. You seek their good, not just for how they can meet your own needs, needs or, or what you might do together, but how they're actually doing and, and putting their needs in front of your own. That's the essence of healthy friendship. In marriage, it's the same way. It's putting the, the needs of the other person first. It's always uh, interesting, moderately entertaining, if I might say that, when Jesse and I do premarital counseling with folks. We love doing it, and we often get together afterwards, you know, after they've been married. And so in premarital, con- you know, premarital conversations, it goes something like this, like, what in the world is something that we might fight over when we're married? You know, like there's been no conflict yet, so could you just like explain what that might be if it comes for us? Because right now we just can't wait to love one another, serve one another. I want to do the dishes. I want to do everything for my future spouse. How in the world could conflict come into that? And then like a month or two after the wedding, sit back down, do that kind of next session. It's like, my goodness, this is hard. Like it's actually a constant giving of myself for the other person. It's as if marriage only really works well when I'm giving absolutely every ounce of myself away to this other person. It's like, yeah, we just did like six sessions on that. But it's so hard to get it into our minds. Even leadership, leadership in the world and the church, it's substitutionary sacrifice. Christ-like leadership is doing hard things on the behalf of other people. 
It's starting things or managing things so that somebody else or a group of people might flourish. It's not about taking up authority, not in Jesus' kingdom, but it's about laying your life down for the good of others. Now, I've, I've always struggled to make sense of, of ambition. I'm, I'm naturally a fairly ambitious person. I'm not competitive. I just need to win. <laughs> That's usually how I put it. But by my nature, I'm, I'm an ambitious person. I was in school and growing up and things like that. And there's sort of two different camps within Christianity that we often hear. And the first one is that all ambition is bad. I mean, maybe looking at this passage, you say any desire for power and authority, it's just going to corrupt you. You just need to take the lowest possible position. And then the other side kind of says, no, we need Christians in positions of power and authority. And so ambition is good. Get as much power for yourself as you can and then try to use it for Christ. So the question is, which one of these two things do we embrace? Or if you know Trinity, is there a third way set out for us? Does Jesus, does the life of Jesus give us a third way? And the answer, of course, is yes. I do believe we can recover a healthy and a Christ-centered ambition. I don't know if you've noticed in the Bible, it only uses the word ambition a few times in our English Bibles. In the New Testament, it shows up eight times and all eight come from the Apostle Paul. But it's actually always described as a positive thing unless the word selfish is in front of it. So of those eight examples of ambition in the New Testament, six times Paul is using the phrase selfish ambition. So like Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourself. And so I can look at my own life so easily, my own ambition and say, okay, that's probably 90% of the time selfish ambition. There's some kind of desire for more and it's for me. It's not really for someone else. It's not for the good of others. It's just for me. But the Bible calls that selfish ambition. The two points where Paul uses the word ambition by itself, Romans 15, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Now that is a a self-giving, others-centered, sacrificial type of ambition. It's actually a substitutionary sacrifice where Paul is going to take the gospel into a difficult place for the sake of other people. The other example is 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. And again, that's a posture of servanthood, of substituting yourself, not seeking greatness in the world's eyes, but rather seeking to serve, to do good work with your own hands, for the sake of other people. And so this ambition that Christ talks about, the ambition that Paul is talking about, it's others-centered, it's rooted in love, it gives up personal preference. It takes the posture of the servant, it persists in difficulty. There's a type of Christian ambition that can be strong and, and bold, and yet it does everything that it does for the sake of other people. And as a result, it has totally different priorities. It looks completely different. So I'll give you a few examples. Selfish ambition, desires, status, and recognition. But sacrificial ambition prizes hiddenness and obscurity. Selfish ambition is the work of a lone ranger, but sacrificial ambition is a community of people serving together. Selfish ambition requires constant growth and and promotion, but sacrificial ambition embraces the ordinary works for stability. 
Selfish ambition becomes angry when it's threatened or when things aren't going well, but sacrificial ambition sees challenges as opportunities to love and to serve other people. Selfish ambition prioritizes youth and quick success. I think of those like 30 under 30 lists that I just like hate. Sacrificial ambition prioritizes wisdom and longevity. Like, give me the 70 over 70 list. Give me 70 old folks that are still just absolutely living for Christ. I want to read that article. Jesus is the ultimate servant. And yet in this sense, he's also the most ambitious man who's ever lived because he gave his entire life as a ransom for other people. Like he had all of the comforts, all of the riches, all of the glory of heaven, and he left all of that for the sake of other people, that he might lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, a ransom for many. His way of life, it rejects selfish ambition, and it alone recovers true ambition. And an ambitious person we see in the scriptures is almost always a dangerous thing. There's the, the risk of corruption and, and, and self-centeredness, but it, an ambitious community, people that live together under Christ, that understand that they are loved by God, not because of anything they've done, not because of what they're achieving, but because of Christ's sacrifice for them. A community where you can hold that before one another, where you can show grace and forgive one another, where everything is done in service to one another. An ambitious community is is a dangerous thing in all the right ways. An ambitious community like that, empowered by Christ and the Spirit, can have a massive impact for good in its city and in its world. It's servant-minded, other-centered, sacrificial ambition that can be the mark of Christian maturity. Starting a business so that others can have a great place to work, even though it costs you time and energy. Maybe it's leading a community group to create more space for people. You know, our community groups are all really large right now, even though it means stepping out of a group where you're really comfortable. Raising children to know and love Jesus, even though it's giving up your freedom and your your privileges as an adult. Serving the poor, needy, marginalized. Seeking to elevate them by giving away some of your own power, some of your own connections and resources. Selfish ambition is always about taking our own power, our own status, our own comfort. But sacrificial ambition, to put it in familiar words, it's practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. Let's pray.